Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 18 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I've discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for checking out the show today. I'm happy to have you with us as part of our Wildlands expedition. Whether this is your first time joining us or you've been with us for a while now, it's great to have you here. Didi, our canine leader of the Retro Wildlands Expedition, just got himself a brand new tug rope to play with, so if he meanders over to you, do not be afraid to give that little rope a little bit of a pull. It makes my boy happy. Otherwise, grab a spot around the fire and get comfortable, my friends. It'll soon be time for some retro gaming stories. On today's episode, we're heading back to the Sega Genesis and taking another look at another sequel game. It didn't really hit me until I started preparing my script for this show that this is our third episode in a row where we're covering a game's sequel. Definitely did not plan for that, but whatever, we're doing it. Today we're going to be walking the streets of rage and fighting to reclaim Wood Oak City from the hands of the Syndicate, a criminal organization thought to be eliminated in the first Streets of Rage game. Not only have the Syndicate returned to the city and reclaimed the streets, Adam Hunter has been taken captive by the Syndicate. Adam fought beside Axel Stone and Blaze Fielding in the first game. Once Axel and Blaze learn of their friend's capture, they call upon Axel's friend Max and Adam's little brother Skate in order to rescue their friend and put a stop to the leader of the Syndicate, Mr. X, once and for all. It's a simple gameplay setup, and that's all you need for this amazing game. Before I decided on this game for the podcast, I originally thought it was Streets of Rage 2 that I had played here and there growing up. I had very vague memories of this game, so I was excited to go back to it and see it through. However, once I booted the game up and the music for the first stage hit me, I knew I was wrong. I hadn't played this game before, and it immediately got me excited. When I was looking into games I wanted to cover for the podcast one day, this game kept popping up. It had accolades such as Best Side-Scrolling Beat-Em-Up Ever, Best Two-Player Game, Best Thing to Happen to Sega Since Sonic, Wipes the Floor with Street Fighter 2, and even the accolade Best Video Game of All Time. I'm sure that last one could start a healthy debate, but you can't ignore praise like this. Streets of Rage 2 is widely considered one of the greats and the best in the Streets of Rage series of games. What do I think about this game now that I've played through it a few times? Well, you'll just have to stick around and find out and let me tell you all about it. But before we get to that, I like to use this time to get in some of my plugs and give you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands. I tend to talk about things like what's potentially coming up on the podcast, how the show itself is doing, what games I've been playing, and what's happening in my neck of the woods. If this sounds boring as hell and you're just here to listen to me talk about Streets of Rage 2, no worries friend, just skip ahead about 5-7 to seven minutes into the episode and you should get into the game talk around that time. I also do have timestamps in the show's description as well if you want to know exactly where you need to go. But you are more than welcome to stick around and hear me ramble for a little bit. This part of the podcast is probably best described as foreplay. While I can appreciate getting right into the main event, I argue a good foreplay session just makes it that much more enjoyable, am I right? Eh? So this week has been a pretty good one for me. It's been one week since I checked out the Torg Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio, and I am still riding high on all that excitement. I had a great time being surrounded by people that have as much passion as I do for video games, and especially those whose passions surpass mine. I loved being swept up in it all, and it really revitalized my love for video games, movies, and nerd stuff in general. It feels great getting back to what it is that makes me happy, and the expo itself helped affirm that I love this community, I love this culture, and goddamn I love being a nerd. It's not enough to just sit back and play through games and watch movies for me anymore, though. I want to keep building something in this space that I can look back on and be proud of, and this podcast is going to be a big part of that. 
So first things first, I think I need some business cards or something to be able to hand out and give to people. When I was at the expo, a few of the podcasts that were there had stuff people could walk away with. I think that would be really cool to design and put together. I'm not a graphic designer or have any real-world experience with that sort of stuff, but I'm pretty happy with the podcast logo and the thumbnails I use when I advertise episodes, so we'll see what I come up with at some point. And while I do have a pretty basic website for the show over at retrowildlandspodcast.podbead.com, I would like to make my own website one of these days. Back before I wanted to do this podcast, I actually wanted to do YouTube video game reviews. And before that, I've always wanted to just write video game reviews. Not that I ever put any work into that when I was little or anything, but I had pie-in-the-sky dreams of playing and reviewing video games for a living. As I grew up and went through school, classes where I was writing were usually my favorites. I do have a YouTube channel out there that has one video game review on it, and you can check that out if you search on YouTube Nomads Retro Wildlands, but it's been almost impossible for me to work on video reviews alongside this podcast and work my full-time job and take care of the family. I mean, the kids do need to be fed and watered pretty regularly, and fitting in video reviews is kind of hard doing all that. When I started this podcast, I originally had thoughts of just talking freely and using a couple bullet points on screen to keep my topic straight. The very first two episodes of this podcast are like that if you care to listen to those. While it sounds easy, I had a very hard time talking to myself freeform like that, even though I think I'm a pretty okay talker in my normal life. I have a Funko Pop of Leon from Resident Evil 4 in my home office, and I would actually sit it across from the microphone and talk to it so I could imagine like I was having an actual conversation with another human being, but even that didn't seem to stop me from stuttering or losing my train of thought. You won't actually hear much of that in the first few episodes, though, because I edited the shit out of that audio. So by the time I was doing The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past for episode 3, I decided to write a script and see how that sounded. Not only did I like how it sounded, I realized that I was more or less writing out a game review. I decided to keep this format going forward and eventually use the scripts that I've written up for, I don't know, something when I launch a website or get back to making video reviews. I don't know, it's fun to think about, and now that I'm thinking about it out loud with you all, I really am going off on a tangent, aren't I? Well, you can't get any more behind the scenes than this. I don't know if any of you actually care about all of this, but that's what's been in my noggin rattling around for a bit now. We'll just keep plugging along and see where things take us. So that right there, I think, is a good segue to talk about our social media presence. If you want to keep up to date on what's happening here in the Wildlands, or you just want to get some gaming goodness added to your timelines and feeds, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching at Retro Wildlands. I'm getting pretty good about posting something daily, and every now and then, I put a story up on Facebook or Instagram for your viewing pleasure. I also think I'm getting better at using hashtags, and the quality of my photos might actually be getting better. Of all the accounts our social media touches, we're getting more engagements, meaning more people are either liking or commenting, which is awesome. If you wanted to get in on all that, consider following us on social media. One benefit of doing so is that I put a call out for comments over on all platforms over the weekend, so that if you wanted to comment about the game that's coming up on the next podcast episode, or you had a question about the game, the podcast, or something you just wanted to ask me, you could pose those through that post, and I'll read them and answer them in the next episode of the show. I'm trying to give people not just an incentive to follow us, but a way to interact with the show if you wanted. No pressure or anything, just know that the option is there. Plus, our social media channels are the best way to get a hold of me directly. You can shoot me a direct message on any of those platforms if you wanted to offer any feedback on the show, or just bullshit about games, or whatever else. While I am on our social media channels pretty regularly, I did somehow miss a message that someone sent to me way back in the middle of August over on the Instagram platform. Instagram has this feature where when someone who isn't following the account messages me, it filters that message into a request category, at least that's how I assume that worked. 
I didn't notice it until this weekend and felt really bad since that person had nothing but praise to give about me and the show. I finally responded, but I felt like kind of a jerk. So Ashley, I'm really sorry I missed your message, but I really thank you so much for reaching out. I appreciated the fact that you called our show listenable. I think that's probably the best compliment any podcaster can get. So moving forward, I'll be much more diligent about making sure I'm checking messages and not losing track of anything that Instagram wants to filter funny. So what have I been playing as far as video games go? I'm still chipping away at Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII for the PlayStation Portable. I've talked about this game a few episodes in a row now, but I'm fixing to play this game through again so I can do an episode about it. The remake of Crisis Core is dropping in less than a month, and I thought it would be really cool to drop my thoughts and experiences with the original in time for anyone who might have missed out on this gem to get caught up before the remake, or give anyone a recap of what this game is all about if they've played it way back in the day and just want to get a refresher. I am a Final Fantasy VII diehard, and probably part of the reason Square Enix is putting so much into this series, but I think Crisis Core was a fantastic game a bunch of people may have missed out on. I've been having fun playing through it again, and I'm eager to make a good episode for you all when the time comes. I don't think it'll be next week, but any time after is fair game, so we'll see what happens. I'm thinking two weeks from now, but still, we'll see where the stars take us. For those of you who follow us on social media already, I found a new retro gaming store pretty close to my work. I finally got my hands back on Max Payne for the PlayStation 2, and I posted that game in all its dark, noir glory. I do want to do an episode of the podcast about Max Payne soon, so there's a great chance that I'll have booted that back up by the time you're hearing my voice. I played it most of the way through when I was younger, but it has been way too long since I played that game and put myself in the shoes of Max Payne, the man with nothing to lose. I was also fortunate enough to get a hold of the sequel at the Torg Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio, so I'm ready to run through that series pretty soon. Real quick about the podcast itself, we're getting a small growth spike, which is really awesome. We're not posting world-class download numbers or anything, but this past weekend saw a 66% increase in downloads over the last 30 days. That's really cool to see, and it tells me that word may be spreading about the podcast. So if you're someone who happens to like the show enough and aren't embarrassed to tell your friends about it, keep that shit up. Still blows my mind that people are giving this show a chance. You all rock, and I really mean that. Alright, I think that's enough plugs and self-pleasuring for one episode. It's time to get to the reason that you've all tuned in today. It's time to talk about Streets of Rage 2 for the Sega Genesis. Originally released on December 20th, 1992, this game puts us in the shoes of either Axel Stone, Blaze Fielding, Max Hatchet, or Skate Hunter as we battle through the waves of syndicate goons to rescue their friend, Alex Hunter, who has been taken captive. We're going to need to dig down deep in order to come out on the other end of this ordeal alive. It's time we join the fight, Wildlanders. Strap on your gloves, tie on your headbands, and prepare for battle. Let's join these four young friends, rage burning inside them, as they make a stand for friendship and peace. played video games for any length of time, you've probably heard of the beat-em-up genre. Beat-em-up games are typically 2D side-scrolling games where you play as characters that are going to be relying on their fists to take out wave after wave of opponents who just want to stomp your face into the curb. 
There's certainly more variety on offer here, as some games are in 3D, or others feature more focus on weapons-based combat, but the overall premise is the same. Out of the hundreds of thousands of video games that have been created, there is no shortage of beat-em-ups out there. This podcast is 18 episodes in, and already we've covered three beat-em-ups so far, not including this episode. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time on episode 4, The Simpsons Arcade Game on episode 10, and Spider-Man and Venom Maximum Carnage right after that on episode 11. Looking back, now that we're about to add a fourth to that list, there's a reason for that. No, I did not plan for this, it sort of just kind of happened. But beat-em-up games are just fun. More than that, I argue that they are a simple kind of fun. Games like these are very accessible to just about anyone. There's usually a story to be had that isn't too complicated, and a control scheme that's only as complicated as you make it. Thinking back, that's probably why so many arcade games that I would see when I was younger were mostly beat-em-ups. Games like X-Men, Captain America and the Avengers, The Simpsons, and of course, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And while I would typically see kids at the cabinets, I would absolutely see all manners of adults there too. Beat-em-ups are great for all gamers of any age and skill level, and they are never not fun to play. That's exactly what Streets of Rage 2 brings to the table. Obviously a sequel to Streets of Rage, this game will go on to be one of the most revered beat-em-ups of all time. Now, it's been a very, very long time since I played the original Streets of Rage, so it's not going to be fair for me to compare the two, but I'm assuming the second game is considered better given the amount of praise I'm finding online. Both games are great, but on today's episode, we're skipping ahead to the sequel. So let's dive into this game, see what we're working with, and for those that have played this game before, get ready for some sweet, sweet nostalgia. Let's start from the top. So, what is this game? Streets of Rage 2 is a 2D side-scrolling beat-em-up where we take control of one of four playable characters. We can play as either Axel Stone, Blaze Fielding, Max Hatchet, or Skate Hunter. In the first Streets of Rage, a criminal organization known as the Syndicate has taken over the city. Their ranks run deep, and the Syndicate even has the police force on their payroll, so they are seemingly untouchable. Deciding to throw away their badges and attempt to bring the Syndicate down, Axel, Blaze, and another cop buddy named Adam take to the streets. They don't have any weapons, but they do know how to hold their own in hand-to-hand combat. Together, the three of them go from street to street, district to district, wiping out the Syndicate's forces. Eventually, they meet the leader of the Syndicate, Mr. X. They are successful in taking him down, and it seems like all is right again. But clearly something has gone terribly wrong, because we have a sequel. So fast forward one year. Peace continues to prevail, and the once-vacant neighborhoods are starting to be populated again as people start to make their way back into the city. Things are on the mend, and the city starts to prosper. After the battle last year, Adam, Axel, and Blaze went their separate ways. The trio meet up in the city on the anniversary of the Syndicate's destruction and commemorated their victory and used the opportunity to catch up with each other. After all was said and done, they promised to do the same thing next year. The next day, as Axel was checking out of the hotel that he had gotten the night before, he gets a frantic call from Skate Hunter, Adam's kid brother. Skate just arrived home to find the house ransacked, and Adam was missing. When Axel and Blaze both show up, they find a photograph stuck to the front door that Skate apparently missed when he came home. It was a photograph of Adam in chains, lying at the feet of someone that Blaze and Axel remember all too well. It was Mr. X, leader of the Syndicate. Soon after Adam's abduction, criminal elements started to come out of the shadows and reclaim the streets. Gangs started roaming the parks, bikers who liked to carry bombs would make traveling at night extremely dangerous, and beatings and looting would happen at all hours. Chaos quickly enveloped the city and the mayhem was much worse than it was before. 
Axel and Blaze went to find any of their old allies on the police force, but anyone who was part of the force before had either transferred out or were fired for helping them the last time. Axel and Blaze were on their own this time. Refusing to back down, Axel calls upon an old friend named Max to help out, and Skate himself tags along to help rescue his brother. Standing in their way is a seemingly endless supply of hired goons, punks, and brawlers that have ever been assembled. We as the player take control of one of our heroes, or a friend can join alongside us in two-player mode, and it's up to us to take down the Syndicate and rescue Adam. So that's the story of Streets of Rage 2. A decent portion of that summary I paraphrased right out of the instruction manual. The opening of the game itself has a much shorter summary, but I love how old instruction manuals would sometimes expand on the stories of older games. Besides, we need to know the why behind beating the shit out of countless grunts and goons, so there we have it. Now the next thing we need to figure out is, who do we want to play as? Let's take a quick look at our four heroes. The cool thing about each character is each of them handled differently in terms of how they move, how they attack, what special moves they have, and how they handle weapons that you'll find along the way. When you go to choose your character when the game starts, you can choose one of the four. You'll notice at the bottom of the screen that each character is rated in certain areas. We've got power, technique, speed, jump, and stamina. While the instruction manual for this game is pretty robust, it does not explain what each of the categories mean. A couple are self-explanatories, and others are a little ambiguous. Power has to do with damage dealing. The more stars you have by power, the more damage that you'll deal when you hit an enemy. That one is simple enough. Speed is another one that's easy to interpret. The more speed you have, the faster you move. I also think the higher your speed, the faster you attack, but that's just my observation. Jump, I assume, is the ease at which your character jumps and attacks while jumping. I actually didn't find myself jump attacking too much, so I can't really speak to how each character handled here. Stamina seems to be how much damage that your character can take. I noticed characters with higher stamina didn't take as much damage per punch than characters that had lower stamina, so I'm going to go with that. And last, we have Technique. I cannot for the life of me figure out what this stat means. There's internet articles, forums, and reddit threads devoted to the topic, but no one can seem to agree on what this stat actually is. So with that, I'm not going to pretend I know what it means, I'm not going to spend any time on it, we're just going to move on. When I played through the game this past week, I played through the game to completion twice. Once with Axel and once with Blaze. I messed around with Max and Skate a little bit, but I didn't put too much time into them. Given my observations and experience, Axel and Blaze seemed to control and handle fairly evenly. There were some differences in the moves that they would use and how they would handle weapons, but all in all, they seemed fairly evenish to me. They weren't powerhouses dealing a ton of damage, they were fairly maneuverable, and they jumped well enough. Max, on the other hand, is a giant brick shithouse. He's a muscular tank of a man that moves extremely slow compared to his friends, but his damage output is absolutely the highest. His stamina is also the highest, so Max will be able to take more damage before being knocked out. And it probably goes without saying, but Max jumps for shit. Looking at the opposite end of the spectrum, Skate is a young kid, so his power output and stamina are the weakest. Basically, he's weak and gets his ass beat pretty quickly if you let him take damage. However, he's the fastest out of all the characters. Skate moves around on rollerblades, which is where his name comes from, and because of this, he moves around pretty fast. His jump ability is highest as well, and from what I can tell, he's pretty easy to move around on the ground and in the air. It's not power that you're using to overwhelm the opposition with him, it's your speed. So those are our heroes and their areas of expertise. Before we jump into the game and visit the game's first stage, let's talk about how Streets of Rage controls. Controls here are simple enough. The directional button moves your character around to start off with. Up moves you up, down moves you down, etc. Your B button is your attack button. 
When you press it, your character will punch. If you strike an enemy and keep pressing it, your character will perform a string of attacks together to form a combo that typically ends with your character knocking the enemy off their feet. There's also an attack that you could do if you press and hold the B button for a moment and then release it. It's a decently powerful single strike attack. I wasn't able to do this attack too often when I tried, but every now and then I would be able to get it to work. Another attack you can launch happens when you double tap the directional button towards an enemy and then press the B button. These are called blitz attacks and act almost like a shoulder charge if you've ever played a beat em up before. The thing to take into account though is each blitz attack varies by character. Axel will dash forward and let loose a pretty powerful uppercut called the Grand Upper. Or at least I think that's what he's saying when he throws it. Here, take a listen and tell me what you think. Grand upper! Grand upper! I'll let you decide what it is he's actually saying, but it's still pretty badass, regardless of what he's saying, am I right? Blaze's blitz attack is a bit different, as she'll do a front flip in such a way that her legs will land on someone that's just a little bit of a distance away. Her blitz attack was a little hard for me to line up, so I didn't use it all that often. And rounding out the basic attacks is the rear attack, which lets you take a swing or kick behind you at someone approaching you from the backside. If you're playing alone, enemies will typically move to surround you, but it's not nearly as severe as a tactic as the enemies in Maximum Carnage. Now pressing your C button will make your character jump. You can press your B button to attack in the air, effectively doing drop kicks or bringing your fist down from above. I usually like using a jump attack on an enemy that's in the process of getting up off the ground. It keeps them on the ground, and if you can time it right, it's a pretty good technique for some of the harder foes that are a little tough to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with. The last button on the controller is the A button. Pressing it will unleash your character's special attack. Special attacks are pretty powerful and can help turn the tide of a battle by dealing heavy damage to an enemy or group of enemies if you can connect with all of them. Each character's special attack is different and has two variants. First, if you press the A button without moving, you'll perform a stationary special. Axel will swing his arm around and clock anyone standing around him and potentially behind him. Blaze will perform a backflip that does just about the same thing, it hits whoever's in front of her and behind her. Now if you press a directional button towards the enemy and hit your A button, you're going to do a directional special. Blaze will thrust her fists forward and hit any foes that are in front of her. There's a small burst of energy of sorts that comes out of her fist when she does this, and it gives her attack a little bit of range. Axel, on the other hand, will start a flurry of punches ending with a massive uppercut. This is a great move to use against stronger enemies, but you have to be careful. The range on this special is pretty short. And not only is the range short, if you execute it and you miss your enemy, you're going to stand there looking like an idiot flailing your fists around. You'll want to experiment with your character and get a feel for their specials and how best to utilize them in each situation. You need to be careful though because special abilities will cost you some of your health to use, so you need to weigh that with the benefit you're hoping to get out of it. If you use your stationary special ability, you won't lose any life unless you land a hit, whereas if you use your directional special, just using it costs you some of your health. Not really sure why that choice was put into the game design, but it is still something to consider. The last type of attacks that you can pull off before we move on are throw attacks. If you walk over to an enemy and get close enough to touch them, your character will grab that enemy and hold on to them. From here, you can rapidly press your attack button to unleash a flurry of blows, press away from the enemy and the attack button to throw them behind you, press the B and C buttons together to perform a super slam, or you can wait a split second, then press the B button and have your character perform one powerful strike. It's a really fun and easy to use feature. I would find myself grabbing an enemy, attacking him a few times, then pressing away and flinging the enemy backwards into the other enemies that were trying to circle around behind me. I felt like an absolute badass any time that I did this. Alright, with that, that should cover the setup. We have our story, 
We know the controls and a majority of the moves, and we know what our characters are more or less good at. We still have some ground to cover, but I think it's time we head out onto the streets and apply what we've learned and start administering some vigilante justice to the syndicate lackeys stupid enough to think they can mess with us. After pressing start at the title screen, we're taken to the player select screen. <sighs> Alright, let's see. There's arguments out there that go back and forth on which character is actually the best character to use. Axel, I argue, is probably the easiest character to play with, but my favorite character has always been Blaze. She moves at a decent clip, jumps alright, and I like her special moves. Plus, when I was growing up, I always thought she was hot, so that usually cemented my choice. So let's choose Blaze and get to fighting. As stage one opens, we enter downtown. Seedy nightclubs and dive bars line the back of the area, and the lights of their signs almost signal our arrival to the goons that are walking the streets. It takes no time at all for several thugs dressed in blue to start making their way over towards us, their fists raised for a fight. We pick our first one out of the crowd, the first unfortunate soul that's going to get taken out on these streets of rage. <laughs> see what I did there? Walking over next to him, we hit our attack button and string together a four-hit combo. And down he goes. Three more goons looking just like the last one come towards us, and we take them all out with no problem. As we move down the street, there's a garbage container near the top of the screen. Our mission is to clean up the streets, but it sounds like a good idea to break that garbage can open and spill out its contents for some reason. So we do just that, and what do you think we find? Turns out there was a bag of money in there. Not sure why anyone would want to throw out a perfectly good bag of cash, but their loss is our gain. We bend over to pick it up, and our score increases by a thousand. Neat. While we're rummaging through the trash, another goon in a yellow jacket makes his way towards us. When we start to wail on him, we notice his life bar is a lot longer than the last batch of goons that we just took out. Maybe it's time for some more advanced techniques. After beating on him for a bit, we move over to him and grab him. Then we promptly throw him to the ground. Piece of cake. We continue onward as more goons show up to assert their dominance. Closing the distance fast, we opt to take to the air. We have Blaze jump up towards them, and pressing the attack button has her kick the nearest thug right in the mouth. As he gets up, two more punks come into range, making a small cluster of three. This scenario is prime time for a special attack. We choose to deploy a directional special attack by pressing forward, and Blaze thrusts her hands forward and a small blue blast of energy extends outward. All the punks take heavy damage and are cast aside like unwanted children's toys. Further down the alley, there's a couple more trash cans that are begging to be ransacked. When we break open the first one, we find that someone left a perfectly edible apple in there, and they left it on a clean white plate. I don't know about you, but if I'm ever feeling crummy or just need a pick-me-up, garbage apples make all the difference. We bend over to grab it and eat it, and we have our health restored a little bit. We silently thank whoever felt the need to toss that apple in the trash, and then we move on. As we round the corner, yet another trash can sits, waiting to be smashed. Once we topple this one, we find that there was a knife hidden inside. Now this will come in handy. When we pick it up, our basic attack is replaced with a knife swipe. From what I played of the other characters, I noticed that all the characters just thrust the knife forward and any enemy unlucky enough to get hit by it will fall backwards and tumble to the ground. Blaze, on the other hand, can actually strike an enemy twice or sometimes three times with a knife, dealing some pretty good damage. Almost on cue, another goon strolls on screen begging us to stab him. Well, this knife isn't going to embed itself in this dude's chest, so let's help it along. The poor sap falls backwards, but he still has some fight left in him as he stumbles to his feet. 
Not really wanting to waste any time walking over to him again, we decide to throw the knife at him Jason Statham style. Pressing the B and C buttons together, we throw the knife straight out in front of us. It connects, and that's the end of that poor bastard. The first stage continues on like this for a little while still, but that's the general gameplay of Streets of Rage 2. You have a variety of moves to take out your opponents, as well as weapons that you'll come across that are really going to help you out. Now, I hope all the sound effects like the punches, kicks, and character voices came through your speakers alright because there were a couple reasons I threw those in there. First of all, of course, was to enhance the moment and hopefully create some awesome nostalgia. But second, I'm hoping I did a good job of showcasing the feel of this game. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to explain this right, but bear with me. Streets of Rage 2 just feels good. There are a ton of beat-em-up titles out there, but the sounds of making contact with your enemy and the thuds you hear when they go down have a sort of heft to them, a weight that makes it feel like each punch really means something. I don't really know how else to describe it. All the moves your character can pull off aren't complicated to execute, and you really don't even need to get that complicated if you don't want to. So now that we've gotten a taste of the streets, I wanted to fill in some of the gameplay gaps and talk about those for a bit, and point out some of the specifics as I went about my journey with this game. So with that, let's talk about some of the weapons while they're fresh in my mind. The knife we find was just one of a couple weapons that we can come across. Sometimes we'll find them indestructible objects like we did those trash cans, or we might come across things like barrels or boxes, but other times other enemies will bring them into the fight and you'll have to knock the enemy down and cause them to drop their weapon, and then you'll be able to pick it up and use it against them. There's weapons like a lead pipe, a katana, a kunai, and even bombs that you can come across. Most of these are pretty self-explanatory. A lead pipe is a pretty lengthy pipe that deals moderate damage and has a decent range to it. The katana sword has just a hair shorter range than the pipe, I think, but it swings faster and I think the damage output is slightly higher than the pipe. Kunai are like ninja daggers, and while they operate like the regular knife does, I didn't notice any differences when I used one, but these little guys weren't all that common on my playthroughs. All of these items are pretty standard fare when it comes to games like this. To pick one up and use it, you just need to walk over to it, press your attack button and your character will bend over and pick it up. Pressing your attack button will now swing the weapon. Like I demonstrated earlier, you can also throw them by pressing the B and C buttons together. Once you do this though, the weapon is effectively gone whether you hit the enemy or not. From my experience, weapons can be used indefinitely, and they only disappear if they get knocked out of your hand too many times, you trade it in for another weapon one too many times, or you throw it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think a pipe will stick around after you throw it and it hits another enemy, but I never really tended to throw the pipe too much, so if I get that one wrong, please don't be mad at me. What I would tend to do is use a weapon until I dropped it twice, then if I had clear opportunity, I would throw it at someone and that would be that. One little touch that I appreciated was how each weapon, while usable by all characters, was wielded differently by each character. Blaze being her nimble self, excelled at using knives and would often hit enemies two or three times in one swing. Skate, on the other hand, being as small as he is, had a hard time using the big lead pipe. It can still be used, but it feels like he has an extra frame of wind-up animation before he actually starts to swing it around. I don't think it's as simple as saying certain weapons are better for some characters than others, it just adds to each specific character's, well, their character. You see, when you play the game through as different characters, they aren't just palette swaps. They really are different people, and how they move and attack show that. Sure, the button inputs are the same, but Blaze handles differently compared to Axel, compared to Max, compared to Skates, etc. I really appreciated this, knowing that I could play as each character and have kind of a different gameplay experience based solely on their moveset and how they behave. Here's something that happened to me a lot that I'm wondering if it happened to you if you've played the game before. Sometimes, weapons will get placed on top of each other, like if I hit two goons at the same time, they might drop a lead pipe on top of a knife. 
There would be times I would hit my attack button to pick an item up, and then hit the attack button again thinking I'm going to swing at an enemy. But nope, if you're holding a weapon and press attack over another weapon, you'll swap weapons. It's funny, there would be times that I would be so engrossed in the combat that I would bend over and swap weapons back and forth like this, and it wasn't until one of the weapons finally disappeared that I realized what was happening. Bending over and picking up a new item is barely a frame of animation and it happens really fast. It would be a bit annoying, and oddly enough, this happened to me frequently enough that I had to mention it. Not a huge gameplay flaw or anything like that in the grand scheme of things, I was just kind of curious if this ever happened to anyone else. Streets of Rage 2 takes place over the course of 8 stages all told. Each stage may have multiple, shorter sections that break up the monotony. The first stage that we were just fighting through has three sections if I remember correctly. There's the streets outside, then we go interior into a bar setting complete with destructible tables and chairs, then we make our way outside to the back alley for the final boss of that stage. All the backgrounds look fantastic and have instances of where parallax scrolling happens. Parallax scrolling is when parts of the background move at a different speed than parts of the foreground. This mostly happens outdoors, and the one stage that comes to mind is the second one where you're on a bridge under construction just outside the city from what it looks like. The back of the stage makes up the railing of the stage itself and scrolls in time with your character. Beyond the bridge is a vast cityscape. The city scrolls slower than the bridge railing, giving you that visual impression that the city is really far off. In past episodes of the podcast, I mentioned that I don't really have a ton of Sega Genesis games on my gaming resume, so this might be standard fare for the console, but I was pretty impressed with how this game did this. The first Streets of Rage game came on a 4 megabit cartridge, and if you've played the original, you can see that it doesn't look nearly as polished. Streets of Rage 2 came out on a massive 16-bit cartridge, and just looking at this game shows that the developers squeezed every megabit dry. One more thing this did was allow the game to have many more enemies on screen at once, too. So speaking of the enemies, let's dive a little bit more into the enemy types that you'll come across, as there's a pretty good variety as you play. All of the enemies in this game are going to be human opponents, except for two. Like most beat-em-ups, you'll have your entry-level goons that exist for you to beat on. They're very accommodating goons and tend to stand around waiting for you to just beat on their ass. These are the guys in the blue vests, jeans, and red hair. As your foes get more powerful, you'll find enemies that not only punch and kick you, but they'll also grab you as well. Sometimes they'll pound on you for a bit of damage, and sometimes they'll even throw you. I actually found out after I stopped playing this game that you have the ability to land on your feet after being thrown, which allows you to avoid damage and get right back into the action. I had absolutely no idea this was a feature. I don't even think it's in the instruction manual anywhere. So since I missed out on that awesome addition, I can't exactly tell you how to perform this magnificent feat, but stick that one in your back pocket. Most of the regular sized enemies are easy enough to beat on, so even if they can grab you, it doesn't really happen all that often, and it really only happens if you're not paying attention. Now this basic enemy type reminds me of another. He's a shirtless goon, bald with sunglasses. I would find that they would sometimes throw a well-timed uppercut and knock me out of the air if I was jumping towards them. That was a little bit of an annoyance at first, but it made me change up my playstyle a bit when I saw them. These enemies don't spam this move or become overly obnoxious or anything, you just had to be on the lookout. And that's really all there is to offer as far as basic enemy types go. Standard fare with a few tricks up their sleeves. They'll even sometimes bring some weapons with them, and if you can knock them down, their weapon will go flying and you'll be able to pick it up and use it against them. This is especially useful in the later stages when the ninja with katanas and kunai show up and you get to use their fancy weaponry against them. Why does this game have ninjas, you might be wondering? I don't know, and who cares? Embrace the craziness that is Streets of Rage 2. Aside from the random ninjas, there's a couple bigger enemies that'll pop up here and there that'll pose a decent challenge. 
In the first stage before you get to the bar area, you'll come across an enemy named Jack. He's a big boy and has a spiked leather vest that he wears and sports a bright orange mohawk. Jack comes at us with an unlimited supply of knives that he uses to slash at us or he can even throw them at us. He has a decent amount of health too, sporting two health bars worth of energy, so taking him down will take us some time. He's not too hard, but he can be a little bit of a dick sometimes by laughing at us if we get knocked down to the ground. Jeez, what a prick. The nice thing is, we can use his knives against him if we're able to knock any out of his hands. Another enemy you come across as a boss at the end of Stage 2 that'll come back a few times later is an enemy named Jet. This guy is one of my least favorite enemy types since he has a jetpack on and stays airborne the entire fight so it's very hard to hit him and land any combos. He'll occasionally fly in and try to hit you with a punch or a kick, but where he's most dangerous is when he gets close to you and grabs you. Once he grabs you, he flies up and brings you down headfirst into the ground causing some considerable damage. While these guys aren't too hard to beat so long as you're moving and you time your jump attacks right, these guys can go properly fuck off. Ooh, here's a fun enemy. You'll run into this one early in the bar area of the first stage. Electra is a blonde woman clad in what looks like a leather leotard. If you pay close enough attention to her while you're approaching the bar, you can spot her sipping on a drink. When you get close to her, she discards the shawl that she's wearing, and her right hand actually goes flying to reveal that it was a fake. Her right hand is actually a prosthetic, and it comes in the shape of a long whip that can shoot electricity through it. Things just escalated quickly, my friends. Her whip has decently long range, but the first time you fight her isn't overly hard. She'll show back up in later stages and usually is accompanied by a swarm of regular goons, so be on your guard when you meet up with her again. Don't let her stunning, pixelated good looks fool you. She'll end your life without a second thought. Ah, and I just remembered another enemy that's worse than Jet. This one is named Zamza, and he first shows up as the boss at the end of Stage 3. Zamza is a ninja-looking thing that has long, sharp claws and looks very similar to Blanca from the Street Fighter series. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like Blanca and Vega from Street Fighter 2 had a baby. This guy is extremely nimble and fast, and will often get close enough to you to grab you and suplex you. He easily counters regular attacks, so you'll want to consider going at him with jump attacks or using blitz attacks. Axel's Grand Upper Blitz Attack works especially well against this prick. Oh, and here's another one before I forget. Before you get to Zamza in Stage 3, you come across this alien head that comes out and attacks you. Yes, you heard that right, an alien head! Stage 3's setting is an amusement park, and there's an attraction called the Alien House that has a creepy backdrop and a fog effect that obscures your vision a little bit. It's actually a pretty cool area. Then when you get near the end, the attraction itself comes alive and attacks you in the form of this alien head that tries to knock you down as it swings back and forth. I don't really know how I felt about this enemy in general, it just seemed really out of place in a game like this, but I still couldn't help having a little bit of fun while I tried to take it out. I mean, it was different, so I wanted to shout that out really quick. Now, the last enemy I want to bring up is probably the most hated enemy in this entire game. More hated than Jet, more hated than Zamza, and more frustrating than the final boss. I don't think he has an actual official name, but I'm going to call him Shank. Shank is a regular enemy that walks towards you extremely fast, holding a knife out in front of him like a spear. The knife is sticking out a decent distance in front of him, so if you try to stand your ground and hit him with a basic attack, you're gonna get hit. <laughs> Basically, you're gonna get shanked. And this fucker usually does not travel alone. Like the coward that he is, Shank will run at you while you're in the middle of a combo with other enemies. 
Once he hits you, he runs off screen and then comes back at you again. I would even get shanked if I didn't time my jump attacks right. I recommend a special attack of some kind to knock these guys down. Guaranteed, these guys will mess up whatever flow state that you're in, so you have to be on the lookout for them. I'm hoping someone is nodding to their car radio right now because you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Such a pain in the ass. Even with some of these unique enemies sprinkled in, Streets of Rage 2 is just a blast to play through. The fighting is solid and fun, even if you don't get too deep into your moveset and you just want to keep it basic. One thing I learned in beat-em-ups pretty quick is that you don't want to put your character near the edges of the screen. Enemies will hide out of view and can sometimes attack you when you least expect it. Let them come to you. Also, as you progress in this game in particular, don't always rush ahead. Sometimes you'll come across enemies that are just standing still, taking a knee, or may even be sleeping on a park bench up ahead or something. Take out the few enemies around you first before you move forward and invite them into the battle. This method really helped out at the end of the first stage, where you're in the back alley behind the bar. Many enemies will come pouring into the area, and there's a decent amount of them waiting up ahead as well. I just stood back, took out the enemies that came in, then I inched forward and took out goons that were waiting up ahead, one by one. By the time I made it to the boss that was waiting for me, he only had one punk fighting with him instead of the six or so that I had already dispatched. As we wind it down a little bit, there's something I wanted to mention about the end of the game that I was actually pretty impressed with. If you listened to our last episode on Mega Man 2, I mentioned that I don't particularly care for boss rushes. Those are where you fight the bosses of a game again at the end of the game in a gauntlet of sorts, one after another. Most of the time, boss rushes just feel kind of cheap to me, and they seem to come off as just filler when the game wants to go on just a little bit longer and doesn't quite know how it wants to do that. But I never really liked boss rushes. I mean, why should I fight enemies that I've already mastered and defeated yet again just so I can complete the game? But when I got to the end of Streets of Rage 2, I was eating those words. At the end of Stage 8, as you make your way to the top level to face Mr. X, you have to fight through all the boss enemies of the game one more time before actually reaching the top. I thoroughly enjoyed this part of the game, and it really built up the final moments of the game before the final battle. So why do I like this game's boss rush, but didn't care for Mega Man 2's? Hopefully I can explain this properly and not get too much flack. In Mega Man 2, facing all the robot masters at the end again felt like it was kind of forced upon us. The game was about defeating these masters, acquiring their powers, and finally making your way to Dr. Wily within his fortress. Seeing them all again and having to fight them all one after another before actually facing Wily himself just brought everything to a grinding halt for me when it came to the game's pacing and the game's momentum. It felt, I don't know, disjointed. It felt a little jarring. In Streets of Rage 2, you're constantly facing enemies in the final stage, and the bosses you defeated aren't just waiting for you to fight them one by one. They're actually mixed in with other enemies and part of the force that's trying to stop you. When I fought them again, it was more like I was facing them under different, harder circumstances with other enemies around. It was like the game was giving me a chance to prove that I really had mastered them instead of just having me fight them again one-on-one. -on -one. Does that even make sense? I don't know if I know how to explain how it all made me feel, but all in all, facing every enemy type in the last stage felt like I was putting all my skills to the test in order to prove to the game and prove to myself that I was ready for the final battle. It made beating the game that much more rewarding and satisfying when the end credits rolled. Hell, now that I'm really thinking back, I don't think there was really anything about this game that I really didn't like. Sure, some of the enemy types were pretty annoying. I'm looking at you, Shank. But even despite that, I had a blast playing this game start to finish. I don't think there are very many 30-year-old video games out there that you can say that about. One thing I was not able to experience with this game, though, was the co-op. 
I completed this game completely solo. So that said, the obvious thing is this game is wonderful to play even if you play by yourself. But it absolutely should be played with a friend if you have any of those to enjoy the game with. Streets of Rage 2 absolutely does couch co-op right. You can start the game with a friend right from the get-go, and each of you can choose a character to take on the syndicate together. One thing you have to be aware of, though, is that you can attack your teammate if you aren't paying attention. Best keep some distance between the two of you when throwing around punches and jump kicks. And like any good beat-em-up, a second player can join a game that's already in progress. You just need to press the start button on the second Genesis controller, scroll through a character you want, and you're taken right into the action with your friend or sibling. It's couch co-op just like God intended. And while I'm thinking about it, if you lose all your lives in this game, you're able to use a continue and continue right where your character left off so long as you have continues left to use. And you can choose another character without having to go all the way back to the character select screen too. This applies to playing the game solo or with a pal. It's sort of a no-brainer feature with beat-em-ups in my opinion, but I have played a game or two that did not have this option, and it was very annoying to say the least. Ugh, cough, cough, maximum carnage, cough, cough. Oh, and I can't end this episode without at least talking about the game's soundtrack. If you've listened to the Retro Wildlands for any length of time, you may know that I love video game music and I tend to listen to it pretty regularly. The soundtrack to Streets of Rage 2 fucking slaps. I think I said that right. Because when something is great, we say that it slaps, right? <laughs> pretty sure my kids will be very proud of me saying that. Anyway, the music in this game was composed by Yozo Koshiro. Pretty sure I nailed that pronunciation. He did a phenomenal job with this game's music. He took what he had to work with in regards to the Sega Genesis hardware and found a way to squeeze every bit of quality music out of it. The music sounds great and really fits the mood of the game. I had a great time replaying the game and letting the soundtrack accompany me on my ass-kicking journey. Some tracks are more memorable than others, though. The first stage's music called Go Straight and the third stage's music called Dreamer are standouts for me. There are other tracks that are less memorable, but that doesn't make them any less enjoyable. All in all, the soundtrack is a fantastic cherry on top of this amazing retro Sunday. So as we wrap it all up, I think I finally understand why Streets of Rage 2 is considered by some to be one of the best beat-em-up games out there, and why this game can hold itself against the best games today, even 30 years after its release. What really made the experience memorable for me was the solid gameplay above anything else. There was a real weight behind the punches and kicks I threw, and the moves available to me were robust enough that I always felt like I had the tools I needed to be successful in this game. I never felt like I was just trading blows with another enemy hoping I would outlast them in a fight. And at the same time, the game isn't so technical that it's unapproachable. Anyone can come into this game and have a good time with it, and that's a pretty impressive thing that a video game can do. Building on the gameplay, the atmosphere the game creates with its amazing soundtrack and beautiful visuals really solidify this game's identity. It's a game where it's very easy to find yourself immersed, and before you know it, you're nodding your head along with the music as you're juggling enemy after enemy with hand-to-hand -hand combinations you think only the experts can pull off. If you've never played this game before, you should go find a way to give it a chance, even if you don't think you'll like this style of game. I promise you, all it will take is one walk down the streets of rage, and you'll quickly understand why this game is one you absolutely must take a chance on.
that's gonna do it for episode 18 of the Retro Wildlands, Streets of Rage 2 for the Sega Genesis. Thank you for listening to the show today. I really hope you had a good time hanging out while we explored another fantastic retro video game. When I was growing up, beat-em-up games all sort of lumped themselves together in my head, and other than some of the Ninja Turtle ones, none of them really seemed to stand out. I'm really glad I finally sat down with Streets of Rage 2 and got to understand firsthand why this game is held in such high regard. I've no doubt that I'll be exploring the rest of the game series in due time. Plus, I need to see if I can get my kids to play this one with me. Maybe we can get a pizza and just make a night out of it. What do you say, children? Want to play a 30-year-old video game with your old man? (laughs) If you like the show, please consider subscribing to it on your podcasting platform of choice. And if your platform allows you to, leave us a good review. Not only do good reviews give me the warm and fuzzies, they should help circulate the show some more and give the Retro Wildland some more exposure. It's one of the better ways to support the show. An even better way to support the show would be to use the amazing superpowers of word of mouth to spread the love. If you have any friends or family that like video games, or maybe they're just curious to hear about some games that they don't know much about, let them know about the show. And next time you get yourself a coffee at your local coffee place, you should share the show with your barista. Instead of making small talk by talking about your kids or chatting about the weather while they're making your pumpkin spice frappuccino thing, tell them about the Retro Wildlands. The best part is, if they don't like retro games and don't want to hear what you have to say, they're guaranteed to finish your drink that much faster. So it's a win-win. And don't forget to check us out on social media if you haven't done so already. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching at Retro Wildlands. You can get updates about the show over there and enjoy some gaming goodness on your timelines and feeds. Plus, social media is the best way to get a hold of me directly, so if you want to give me any feedback about the show, pick my brain about anything, or just bullshit for a little bit, shoot me a message or interact with one of our posts. Also on social media, I tend to reveal what next week's episode is going to be over the weekend, and I also give people the opportunity to interact with the podcast by allowing them to leave comments or questions that I'll respond to in the show's intro the following week. So if that's something that interests you, throw us a follow and be on the lookout. So what's coming up next week? To be completely transparent, I have no idea. There's a couple of games that I have in mind, and I've already mentioned Super Mario World a few times, but I haven't committed to what I'm going to do next week yet. I do know that in two weeks' time, at least that's the goal, on December 1st, my goal is to have a show out on Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII for everyone to enjoy in time for the remake's launch. I'm most of the way through that game now, so I need to get to work on a script and try to get my thoughts together for that game. I'm anticipating that one being one of the more meatier episodes of the podcast, given how much there is to the game, and just my personal feelings about it. It'll be the very first time that I try to put a coherent thought around why I love that game so much, and I want to make sure that I'm doing it some justice. So that's coming soon. But as far as next week goes, you're just going to have to wait and see. I grabbed a few great games at the Tor Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio, and I have some of them that are really calling to me. I do have a list of games I want to cover, but I have to admit, I am having a hell of a lot more fun just flying by the seat of my pants. If there's a game you want me to consider covering on the show, reach out to me over on social media. If I have the means to play it, I'll definitely consider it. I love playing games, but more so, I love playing games that other people feel passionate about. Us humans don't agree on too much anymore these days, I feel like, but when it comes to video games, I think we can all agree that there's something special. So on that note, check us out next week as I cover another game that I'm sure is going to be one that you just can't miss. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. (laughs) 